0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. All the girls are complicated,
1: everyone's precious.
2: Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Christian Feminist Podcast with the subject of LGBT people in the church. I'm Marie Haas, a regular panelist who's moderating today's episode, and um, we have with, with me here today the podcast leader, Victoria Farmer, and our new guest panelist that I'm really proud to introduce, Nate Craddock. So hello, Victoria and Nate. Hi. Hello. So um, let's go ahead and introduce ourselves for anybody who's new to the program. Victoria?
1: Hi, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I am recording from Minnetonka, Minnesota. I'm an adjunct professor at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Uh, I work there with my husband, Dr. Michael Farmer, of the Christian Humanist podcast. And right now I'm finishing up a dissertation with Florida State University on young adult novels and Shakespeare. and I defend in something like 53 days. So uh, pretty pretty nervous, pretty excited about that. And I'm really glad to be here today. Oh, well, congratulations on defending so soon. <laughs> oh, please don't congratulate me yet. Congratulate me once I've actually done the thing. but thank you very much. Well, I'm Marie
2: Haas. I'm a regular panelist uh, for the podcast, and I'm also doing PhD work um, in Renaissance literature at Florida State University, but I'm not anywhere near uh, defending yet. This semester, I'm teaching in London with the Florida State University International Program, so I'm having a lot of fun with that over here. Um, and I wanted to moderate this episode because I care a lot about this topic. Um, I, I'm myself pansexual, and I care a lot about how the church treats LGBT people, um, including, of course, uh, LGBT Christians. So, Nate?
0: Hi, y'all. I'm Nate Craddock. I am recording from Woodbridge, Virginia, which is in the balmy southwest suburbs of Washington, D.C. Um, I my day job, I am a direct care counselor at a crisis intervention center for uh, youth here in the area. Um, And then I have two other day jobs, it seems. Uh, One, I am the founding pastor of the only LGBT affirming church on the east end of Prince William County here in Virginia. Um, And I also sit as a board member for Love Boldly, which is a growing nationwide nonprofit geared towards empowering um, willing Christians and sexual minorities to reconcile with one another uh, and to embrace one another. I am really excited that Marie invited me to be a part of this podcast The be uh, the whole LGBT people and the church conversation is one that I've been at the center of that um, as a gay man and This is something that I hope um, will contribute positively to the conversation and help us continue to uh, embrace people who are unlike us um, as we seek to live out uh, the ministry of reconciliation that we've been given um, from Christ.
2: So Thanks, Nate. And I'm particularly glad to have Nate on the podcast uh, because we actually knew each other back in undergrad and um so it's it's great to have this interaction so many years in the future from when we knew each other before
0: mm-hmm. yes <laughs> that's that's a lot of fun too
2: okay so this um topic the topic of our episode today is a very difficult one in a lot of churches and a lot of families right now and and these churches and families um there's Conflicts that tear, tear people apart um, lead to a lot of hurt and confusion and even depression. Um, and some other churches and families, this might not even be a topic of discussion as, at all, as some people uh, in these contexts would be working under the assumption that there isn't really any discussion to be had, either that it's patently obvious that homosexuality is evil and unbiblical, or that it's patently obvious that LGBT people should be accepted just like any other group of people, um, and that there's uh, nothing really to talk about. So people from either of these groups might be surprised to hear the conversation on this topic still going on, thinking that it had been settled at some point in the past, but really sort of sadly to me, it, it is a, a conversation that does still need to go on. And because the attitudes towards LGBT people in many churches and, and Christian environments um, continues to cause a vast amount of damage. And this conversation is one that will go on until that's no longer the case. Back in the first episode of the first season of this podcast, um, if any of you have been faithful listeners and been with us that long we talked then about how the terms of identity christian and feminist are seen by a lot of people as incompatible terms some people think that the phrase christian feminist is an oxymoron and that idea of incompatibility is even more the case when it comes to a phrase gay christian now to me it's it's personally incomprehensible that being gay should be something that would negate the possibility of being a Christian. And, you know, in fact, of course, gay Christians certainly do exist, many of them. One 2009 survey, and we'll link to it in the show notes, suggests that 70% of adult LGBT people in the United States identify as Christian. So it's not really LGBT people so much who are saying that there's the divide between Being gay and being Christian. It's uh, other Christians who are saying this and to me it's It's really uh, kind of heartbreaking to think that there are these churches that are performing the opposite of what is the love of Christ and, and blocking people actually from the church and from that being accepted and feeling loved, even from feeling loved by God sometimes. So partly this idea that the terms gay and Christian are incompatible comes from um, different people in different communities working from uh, kind of different definitions of the same words, and that can create some confusion. So I remember once I was at lunch with some friends and one person was talking about, how they rejected this acting role in a play because it presented a gay person as a Christian. So, you can't be gay and a Christian, this person said, um, in this offhand way as if it were just an obvious statement. And without thinking and sort of um, not even thinking about causing a conflict in the situation, I responded that, of course, you can be gay and a Christian. Um, And the other person went on to say that A gay person can't be a Christian because to be a Christian you must repent of your sins and if a gay person is gay Then they are still sinning. So this person's idea of that kind of Incompatibility partly came from a definition of the word gay that's based on behavior rather than identity Which would be um, the more common definition in some contexts so that kind of difference in definition can lead to people talking at cross purposes at times um, Victoria is going to tell us a little bit more about the terms gay and LGBT, um, as well as some other terms, and then after that we'll talk some about the book Torn by Just, Justin Lee, who is a gay Christian and the creator of the Gay Christian Network, um, as well as about a sermon by Pastor Danny Cortez about why he decided to accept LGBT people, including LGBT people who are, are in active same-sex relationships. So we'll, along the way, touch on a couple aspects of the arguments about biblical interpretation that surround this topic, but um, that's not really the main purpose of this episode. Um, Instead, we're talking about our own sort of attitudes towards the affirmation of LGBT people um, in the church. So in terms of some of the the terminology being used here, Victoria, would you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure, yeah. Um... Like you were saying, Marie, one of the problems in terms of conversations across this, uh, what Justin Lee often calls the gays versus Christians debate, um, one of the things that splits people into two sides is what the term gay actually means. Uh, So Lee clarifies early and often that he uses the term gay uh, to to refer to attraction or to refer to what most people today would probably call sexual orientation. Um, For him, it's about being gay means being attracted to someone of the same sex. Uh, And he says that in a lot of Christian circles that he grew up in and traveled in, specifically uh, a small circle of men who called themselves ex-gay, uh, in his church and in other organizations, that they didn't think of the term gay that way. Instead, they thought of it to refer to behavior. So um, in their viewpoint, you could be ex-gay if you were still struggling with same-sex attraction but didn't act on it. So that's, that's one um, difference in definition that can result in a pretty large disconnect uh, when this conversation is being had. And while we're talking about term definition, uh, we probably also need to talk a little bit about um, acronyms, lots and lots of acronyms in um, discussions about the gay community or the queer community. Um, The acronym you'll hear us use, I think most often on this episode, is LGBT, uh, which stands for Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Trans. Uh, Sometimes transgender, and sometimes uh, members of that community prefer trans with an asterisk, which can mean uh, transgender and or transsexual and or both at once. Um, There are also longer acronyms, sometimes in use for what has been called the queer spectrum, the longest of which is LGBTQQIA, Um, the LGBT I've already mentioned, uh, the Q can stand for, uh, the Q which is sometimes a double Q, can stand for queer and or queer and questioning. Uh, the I for intersex and the A usually for asexual. Uh, queerness can be a separate identity. You're queer if you identify as a gender that's neither masculine nor feminine, but one of the many places in between those two poles. Um, queer is sometimes also used as a catch-all term for all of these, uh, sexual orientations and or gender identities, uh, and some trans people as well as some intersex people and some asexual people object to their inclusion on such a spectrum because they don't think their identifications fit with, uh, some of the other things on the spectrum which are mostly sexual orientations. Um, most trans people say being trans is a gender identity and a lot of intersex or asexual people say this is a biological identity. So uh, a lot of terms, a lot of acronyms. Hopefully I explained that uh, in a useful way. Yes, thanks for that uh, background, Victoria. It's good
2: to have that context as we start off here. Uh, Nate? Would you mind telling us a little bit about Justin Lee and Torn?
0: Sure. Um, Justin Lee, uh, as we said before, is a gay Christian. And his book, Torn, uh, which was released in the fall of 2012, is in some parts a memoir and in some parts a theological reflection on Uh, the issue of being gay and Christian. And as the subtitle of the book says, uh, rescuing the gospel from the gays versus Christian debate. um, And he speaks to his experiences growing up, unsure of his sexual attractions um, and coming to the realization uh, in middle and high school. Oh, something is amiss here. Something is not, like my other peers, and I seem to be developing in a different way. Um And so he eventually comes out to his parents um, and goes through reparative therapy and through his experiences kind of straddling the divide in, um or excuse me, at his university, being uh, a full participant in both the gay and lesbian uh, campus group, as well as the uh, I, I guess you could say non-denominational Christian fellowship there on his college campus, he learns that uh, there is a divide to be bridged between um, people who identify as LGBTQ and people who identify as Christian. Um, as he is straddling this divide, he realizes that, Oh, reparative therapy is not working. Um, and it, is making some assumptions about me, about my upbringing, about expectations for what all gay people should have experienced to turn them gay. Uh, that, that is not comporting with my experience and I don't think it's helpful and I don't think it's um, actually accomplishing what it sets out to accomplish other than making me feel terrible about myself for not being able to change and just making me feel like God hates me. Um, and so Justin has, has, wrestles with this crisis of faith, uh, which is honestly very familiar to my own journey and the journeys of countless of other um, gay and lesbian Christians that I've known and have spoken to. Um, he, he comes to this place of acceptance and says, well, reparative therapy is not working, so obviously God wants me, and in, in some way, God wants me the way I am. What does that mean for me? And so he speaks about coming to terms with his understanding of scripture that allows for um i wouldn't say allows for uh as in a legalistic sense but uh he comes to an understanding of scripture that is broad and open enough and i think rooted in uh, a hermeneutic of love that says oh well it might be that God actually does bless same-sex relationships. So he talks about coming to that realization, and he also talks about his founding of the Gay Christian Network. Um, During this whole time where he is wrestling with his own identity and working on bridging the divide between uh, uh, the gay and lesbian, queer, transgender population on his campus as well as the Christian population on his campus, um, he starts... um, interacting more with people who are also asking these questions um, in private message boards, via email, phone calls, um, and all these various, uh, all these various media. And eventually he realizes, well, it seems as though it would be helpful if there were an omnibus resource for people who identify as, um, as a sexual minority and as Christian. And so out of that came the gay Christian network. And he, he explains in the book that Um, the term gay Christian, he really picked it because, well, that's, that's the fewest amount of characters that I can use to make a URL. Um, really his vision of the gay Christian network includes gays, lesbians, um, people who identify as transgender, genderqueer, uh, questioning bisexual, asexual, pansexual, all of the other, um, all of the other letters in those acronyms. Um, And what the Gay Christian Network has become today is this huge movement um, where people who do not know each other, people who believe differently from each other, um, people who are in different spaces on this journey to self-acceptance and self-integration of their faith and their sexuality um, can come together and support one another through this journey. And it's really interesting Uh, the way that he explains, and I think we'll speak about this later on, but the way he explains how people who came to the same realization he did that God can bless same-sex relationships, and indeed God does, uh, how those individuals were beginning to interact and converse with people who had come to the conclusion through their own study and reflection that, no, the plan for the church, the plan for human sexuality does not have room for same-sex relationships in it, and how those people could come together and have a constructive dialogue. And I think that's uh, honestly the most remarkable um, aspect of Justin Lee's ministry, uh, that he's created the space where people who disagree wildly can come together and still treat each other with dignity and respect and honor the image of God in one another.
2: So thanks for that. Discussion of torn, Nate, and we'll look at some more um, some more aspects of torn in a few minutes here. And I certainly agree that that's one of the important things to take away from torn. And uh, it's my hope from this episode today as well that there needs to be that space for accepting each other uh, through. And above and beyond disagreements about an issue like this or about other issues within the church. Um, so that's that is something I want to emphasize, too. So Torn is, has been a very sort of popular book on the subject of LGBT people and the church and another sort of visible a recent discussion on this topic has been a sermon by Danny Cortez, which can be found on YouTube, and we'll have the link again in the show notes. Cortez is the pastor of New Park Community Church in California. So, in February, Cortez gave this sermon to his church, and in it, he talks about how his opinion on LGBT issues has changed over time. Until now, he believes that LGBT people should be fully accepted by the church. Um, so that would include then Cortez's son, Drew, who came out as gay in February, just two days before Cortez's sermon to his church. And that particular chronology has led some people in responding to Cortez's sermon to claim that he's changed his views only because uh, because of his son coming out, um, which, you know, in itself, would not, it wouldn't be wrong for that to make him rethink his position. But that's not actually the chronology in terms of how he tells the story. So he talks about having this long and complicated inner debate over the course of 15 years. And that's, um, you can really see that experience of the inner conflict that, um, that he's had as you watch his sermon. And, um, that's, that's an important thing I think to take away from a sermon like his, that, um, that it, even though, there's people on um, and who take many positions on this um, on this subject who would think that the debate should be settled. Um, it is something that causes a lot of inner turmoil for a lot of people, and that you know is is something that there has to be space for. So um, that's one thing to take away from this sermon. In terms of responses to Cortez's sermon. Um, I think the response is uh, from John Shore, who's the author of Unfair Christians and the LGBT Question, and Albert Mueller, who's the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, sort of highlights some of the typical responses across the range of possible responses to the sermon. Um, Shore gave Cortez a guest post on his blog in early June, and and that post, Cortez talked about his experience and claimed that he wants his church to now be a third-way church. And he's using a term there from Ken Wilson's recent book, A Letter to My Congregation, where he talks about um, being a church that will accept all people, no matter what their stance on this issue of same-sex marriages. is. responded to uh, Cortez's post, and he said that there can be no third-way, and expressed sorrow that Cortez's church has, Moller says, rejected the clear teachings of Scripture, the affirmations of its confession of faith, and two millennia of Christian moral wisdom and teaching. So, Moller was then writing this before the Baptist Convention, and he issues in this post these sorts of veiled, warnings that Newkart Community Church, which has an affiliation with the convention, would be in danger of punitive action from the Southern Baptist Convention. So as it turned out, that that wasn't really, um, no action of that sort was really taken at the convention. Um, So that's sort of uh, two different kinds of responses that a sermon like that might expect in terms of where this conversation is now on a broader level. Um, Before we go on to some more specifics from Torn and from the sermon, uh, why don't we each so briefly explain what our experience has been in terms of the issue of LGBT people in the church and why this is a topic that's important to us. So Victoria, you can go first and then
0: I'll...
1: Okay. Um, so this issue is important to me um, for several reasons. Um, one, because as we've said many times on this podcast, um, I, I see both my feminism and my Christianity as really centrally about equality and about um, overturning social hierarchies and paradigms, I really feel like Jesus's ministry um, was about elevating people that didn't have a lot of social uh, social capital, social power, and showing how they can be valuable to the world as a whole. Uh, so I, I really see that um, these kinds of honest conversations, nuanced conversations um, about issues like the relationship between the lbgt community and the church are really important um, if our christianity is going to um, be real and and going to affect the world Um, so that's part of the reason why i really want to be a part of this conversation and the other is um i as you all know am a professor at a christian college And I teach social science classes there, one of which is Introduction to Sociology. So it's a a class all about group dynamics. Um, And I I do this activity at the beginning of the course. I just did it last week since we just started a new semester. uh, Where I talk about how we um, we all embody multiple identities, usually at once. And that we need to keep that in mind when thinking about other people. That people are complex and they don't fit into neat boxes. So I ask all the students to list ten group identifications that they possess on the board. And I do the same for myself. Um, And I always, when making my list, write, I am a Christian at the top and then not far below that. uh, I am a feminist, happens on the list. And then I am an LGBTQ ally. And when I ask the students to talk about their lists and to talk about mine, um, students usually say that I can't be the first thing while being the second and third things. And it's it's really important um, to me to not only embody those things in front of the classroom, but to um, to be transparent about them really early. Um, not just because I want to be honest about myself, but because as a figure of authority, um, in a place that can sometimes be kind of restrictive, I want to offer students, um, a safe space where they feel like they can be all of their different selves, uh, and, and be understood and respected. So that's, uh, that's where I'm coming from here. Thanks, Victoria. And
2: yeah, I think that is, a really important thing to try to work towards creating that kind of safe space for people that you're in contact with to be themselves with you, um, especially in that kind of position of authority. And you know, for me, too, this is an issue that's connected with working out my feminism, um, though it's really one that to my shame took me a long time to even sort of think about now when I was growing up, this wasn't a topic that I ever thought about deeply and i was I was one of those people who didn't really know there was a question about this, and I had absorbed the idea that homosexuality was wrong just because Bible so that was that was as far as that went for a few years in graduate school and in- I was experiencing some cognitive dissonance um, because I knew from what I'd learned that uh, LGBT people are natural and equal and should be accepted as such. But I also knew that homosexuality was wrong. So I wasn't willing then to try to reconcile the two convictions. But then when I came to Florida State for my Ph.D. program, I started to attend the Episcopal University Center there. And I met LGBT Christians, and I heard biblical arguments for the acceptance of same-sex marriage. And I wanted to agree then, but I was still too scared to do that publicly. Um Because coming from this fairly conservative environment, I was afraid of what other people would think. And there was something else that was holding me back, too, because as I was reading about these issues of sexuality, and as I read and heard more and more of these stories of the people who identify as gay or lesbian, I'd slowly become convinced that, you know, indeed not all people are capable of attraction to members of either gender. So it might be surprising to you to think that that would be something that has to be proved at all. Um, but we all work off of our own experiences, I guess. And um, really, I think the idea that both... A heterosexual and homosexual attraction is possible for any anyone to have makes a lot of sense in some church context in connection with the teaching that some churches have that same-sex attraction could be a choice and therefore a sin. Um, so, So then I was convinced that the church should accept LGBT people fully, and I was more and more convicted that I needed to able to speak about that publicly and to try to do something to stop some of the damage. Um, But I was still too afraid to speak because now I knew that if I were going to be talking about this honestly and in detail, then I would need to be able to say that now that, in fact, I know monosexual people exist, I'm not one of them. So I'm pansexual and that's A term for bisexual that I prefer because it's less dependent on these gender binaries. Um, And I feel, I, I really sort of deeply feel my privilege in growing up because I grew up able to be attracted to members of the opposite sex, so I never had to feel that there was something irredeemably wrong with me, and I never had to carry some sort of painful secret as a teenager or grow up living in fear or depression as so many young lesbian women and gay men have done. Um, But really I'm not any different. So it's unfair and it's sort of seemingly contradictory to purity culture's treatment of these sexual topics um, because that because I could have a wider range of attractions, I wouldn't have to suffer the condemnation of the people who would only be able to have a more narrow range. So, because until the past year, I never really had to think about that or, or worry about it. So I'm saying now that I'm pansexual because I know that I need to be honest in order to uh, be able to speak about the inclusion of LGBT people in the church. Um, that's something that does need to be spoken about and because I think the church has to be about love and it has to show love. Um, So, Nate, would you say a little bit about your experience?
0: Sure. Um, I, yeah, I grew up in the United Methodist Church, uh, of course. uh, The Book of Discipline of the United Methodist Church in paragraph, I forget what paragraph it is, Um, but they say uh, all people are of sacred worth, but the practice of homosexuality is incompatible. With Christian teaching, and so I grew up with that more or less hanging over my head. It wasn't something that was ever, um, it wasn't something that was ever really emphasized in my household growing up. But it was very prevalent in the, I guess you could say, Baptistical culture that is predominant here in this area of Virginia. Um, for those who don't know, uh, this is a largely Republican area of the state, um, and this is actually. Uh, some of the main churches who fomented the um, the 2003 to 2007 split from the Episcopal Church to become the Anglican Communion, or not the Anglican Communion, but the Anglican Church in North America um, after the ordination of Gene Robinson in 2003, are located uh, within 20 miles of where I live. Um, so this is, this is the kind of cultural milieu that I grew up in. It's not quite the Bible Belt, but it's political enough to be uh, a, a place where lots of narratives about gay people and what they really want are being slung around um, uh, indiscriminately. So I, I was growing up in this um, and I realized around probably six years old that I was interested in members of the same sex. Um, I hit puberty, I hit middle school, and I waited for this to change and for me to become attracted to members of the opposite sex, and I found much to my chagrin that I was actually becoming more attracted to members of, uh, members of my own sex. Um, as I grew up, as I, uh, as I matured, I continued to plunge myself deeper and deeper into a, uh, a, 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 kind of self-loathing evangelicalism that said, well, I know God can change me. I know God will take this away from me. I just have to have enough faith and he'll do it. Um, And so I ended up actually going to a, uh, a private conservative Christian college, uh, the same college that Marie went to um, out in Kentucky. And while I was there, I was having these conversations with people I trusted. And it seemed as though um, I, I didn't quite go all the way into reparative therapy, but I got a lot of that second hand. Um, and the, the solution I was given for my sexuality or my issues of sexuality or questions about it was, Oh, well, just get married to a woman and it'll all evaporate. You won't even have to worry about it. Um, and so I did. Um, and then I found about a, six months into our marriage that, Oh, this is not uh this is not panning out the way I expected it to. Um and I, I I was in love with the person that I had married, but I realized, you know, there is still something very deep here, very um almost inscrutable that is not being resolved the way that I expected it to be resolved. Um and so during uh during my last semester of college and my years at seminary following that. Um, I continued to have this uh, inner struggle of discerning uh, who am I why why am I wired with this particular struggle uh, that was my preferred way of phrasing it uh, during the time what can I do about it and, and why hasn't God changed it yet um, I finally came to a place of acceptance of this, Aspect of my identity in the summer of 2011 and I said, well, I can't come out because that'll end my marriage and I have a child and I that will create a whole string of issues to be dealt with. And so I figured, um, well, I can continue to pretend that I'm straight and pretend that nothing is amiss. Uh, and I can pretend that everything is just fine. Um, and this this need to pretend this need to be something that I wasn't this need to keep up the charade of having all my stuff together, uh, as it were, actually led me to a point where I was uh, having episodes of suicidal ideation on a monthly basis. Um, I was on. Um, a strong antidepressant, uh, I was in counseling, uh, beating myself up constantly spiritually for not being able to get, for not being able to get rid of this aspect of my identity. Um, and then a year later in the summer of 2012, um, my wife was away on a business trip with our daughter and I finally came to the point where I said, I cannot keep this a secret anymore and expect to be able to live. Uh, it became, it, it became an issue of, um, it became an issue of life and death for me. And I said, well, I have to be honest with myself. I have to be honest with God. I have to be honest with my wife. So, um, the last week of July in 2012, I, the first person I came out to was a friend of mine who was a priest. And I came out to a counselor and then I came out, um, to my wife and, we went through about six or seven rolls of toilet paper bawling our eyes out that week and eventually came to the realization, well, our marriage can't continue um, because it was predicated on a false assumption. Um, and actually, you know, over the course of that week, my wife said, I can't share a bed with you anymore. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to share a house with you. And it was at that point that I moved out. Um and this is this is all happening very quickly. It's it was within the course of two weeks, um, and I realized that you know my entire life had just kind of like fallen out from under me as a result of this. And I, I I feel the need to also point out that throughout this whole time, I had never been unfaithful to my wife. I'd never done anything sexual with someone of the same sex. I just had this attraction, and I knew that I could not alter it in a way that it would you know become normal quote unquote um, and so it, i i i moved out um and i i was sitting on my bed in this rented room in a stranger's house um after i moved out and i had moved all my stuff out of out of our home and i said well i guess this is the closest i've ever been to actually dying um, and i realized that from that point and over the next few months, I I, be, I started to realize, oh, well, I am kind of living out um, a process of death and resurrection. And in my case, it was a quick, painless death and a slow, agonizing resurrection. Because what happened is that I had to reconstruct my entire faith predicated on the one thing I knew that was true, um, was that Christ was risen from the dead. and that I was living out a process of death and resurrection. Everything else just kind of flew out the window for me at that point. Biblical hermeneutics, uh, linguistic studies, cultural studies. I had to grab hold of the one thing that I could still hold on to, which was the death and resurrection of Christ and the real presence of the Eucharist um, and let those be the bedrock for reconstructing my faith in a way that, Made sense to me in a way that I could continue to um, be a Christian and continue to um, to live, really, uh, because my faith was such a huge part of my life. Um, and and so as I as I gradually reintegrated myself, I first became involved in the Episcopal Church, which of course is a, as a denomination is open and affirming, and it, that gave me the space to. Um, ask the questions that I needed about myself and about my own faith. Um, and then after that, I became involved in the old Catholic movement, um, which is a particular form of Catholicism that came out of uh, the Church of the Netherlands in the 1800s. Uh, but that gave me the space to be who I needed to be in order to one, keep my faith and to be faithful to my calling to ministry. And so it's at this point that I am now, you know, I'm a leader in the church. I'm preparing for my ordination to the priesthood. And it's because of my experience with the coming out process and this experience of death and resurrection and having to rewire my life and reconstruct my faith and rebuild relationships with people who thought they knew me. Um, that's given me honestly what I need to be an integrated adult human being today. Uh, and, and that's, that's something that I treasure. Um, And if I had to go back and do it all over again, some part of me says, well, maybe I should have just gone to a state school and come out when I was, you know, a freshman in college. Um, But I also think that uh, the, the, uh, the road I've walked in particular has been invaluable in shaping who I am and making my soul as it were.
2: Oh, thanks for that, Nate. And I like what you said about the uh, getting back to the the bedrock of your faith i think that's that's something that's important to a lot of us as uh, um recognizing that there is that really unshakable foundation and that we have that in christ um No matter whatever, what other sort of changing, changeable things wash around on the surface, that we have that foundation. Um, okay, so let's move on then to a few of the more specific points of discussion from Torn and from the Cortez Sermon. And for the sake of time, we'll be uh, brief in this section. So, Victoria, could you, um, tell us a little bit more about the first part of, uh, Torn?
1: Sure. Uh, so the, the book has 15 chapters and the first seven or eight of them focus on, um, Justin Lee's childhood and adolescence struggling with his sexual orientation. Um, and for the sake of concision, I'm going to talk primarily about two sets of relationships, um, in the first half of the book, one with his high school girlfriend, Liz, and the second with his parents. Uh, so he, um, He realizes at a very young age that he's attracted to boys instead of girls and um, starts dating uh, this young woman, Liz, in an attempt to, kind of similar to what um, Nate shared with us, to kind of make those feelings go away and he isn't really attracted to her physically even though he's still physically attracted to young men but he writes this off as respecting women and says well i don't think lustfully about her because i respect her body uh eventually a high school friend of his says i'm not sure I i think you might be bi um, and then eventually he realizes that um that he's he's not in fact someone who identifies as bi that he identifies as gay and when he comes out to his parents with the help of a pastor uh they are emotionally disturbed but incredibly supportive, so supportive that they go to um conferences with him uh primarily ex gay centered conferences um he has before these conferences talked to some men in his church that call themselves homosexuals anonymous uh justin decides he doesn't really want to continue hanging out with their group because he sees them as as lying to themselves as lying to their wives so he goes to these conferences with his parents to try and find another way and at these conferences there's a lot of trotting out of the um the mobley model of sexuality which is the model that says um, distant fathers and overbearing mothers raise gay children, and Justin gets really upset at the repeated um, trotting out of this model. Not just because it's uh, the studies have been shown to be questionable, but because of the way they're making him and other children and parents in the room feel. He says he feels like the model guilt parents, um, but also personally. Uh, he says it's not true to his upbringing. He had a great childhood. Um, his father wasn't distant. His mother wasn't overbearing. This model doesn't seem to work for him, so maybe it doesn't work for other people. So really, um, both of these relationships um, that are at the center of kind of his his adolescence and his search for meaning as a, a young gay Christian tell him that... Um, relationships and identities are more complex than he originally thought. And that's uh, a very quick uh, summary of the first half. I guess I, I should actually say one more thing. Um, he talks early in the book about the, uh, I, I've already mentioned his his problems with the ex-gay model, but he also talks about the love the sinner, uh, love the sinner, hate the sin model. Um, uh, approach to the gay community and he basically says that it's it's condescending it doesn't really have a lot of grace in it for a couple of reasons one uh, that phrase lets the person doing the loving forget that the sinner is also a person (laughs) and also that the person doing the loving is himself or herself a sinner as well Um, as an alternative to the love the sinner hate the sin model he quotes um pastor tony campolo of whom i am a huge fan uh who says jesus doesn't actually tell us to love the sinner and hate the sin instead jesus tells us to love the sinner because we hate our own sin uh so i really liked that and because i know we're crunched for time i will stop there
2: okay thanks victoria those are some good key points from the first part of the book um And Nate, um, for the rest of our discussion of Torn here, could you tell us a little bit about um, some things from the second part, about what Justin Lee finally decided about um, LGBT issues and uh, his basic idea for the Gay Christian Network? I know you touched on this already, but some of the more specific details here.
0: Sure. Um, Justin arrives at the conclusion that God can and does um, bless and prosper same-sex relationships that are committed, monogamous, and uh, effulgent with grace. Um, The way he arrives at that is by paying attention to the way Jesus handles the Old Testament law in the Gospels. Of course, uh, Jesus says that All the law and the prophets can be bound up under these two commandments. Um, Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, And so he investigates the kinds of, um, he investigates the way that same-sex activity is talked about in the Bible. And he discerns through study, through conversation with scholarship, that of all of the references to same-sex activity... In the Bible, there's nothing that actually talks about committed same-sex relationship between people who share the same sexual orientation. The only references throughout the whole canon of scripture are overwhelmingly negative because they refer to this kind of same-sex sexual activity that is violent, forceful, exploitative, and um, the kind of activity that denigrates the image of God in another human being. Um, these can be references to rape, as in the Sodom and Gomorrah narrative. These can be references to temple prostitution. These can be references to, uh, pederasty and pedophilia, as we see in the Pauline corpus. Um, and so Justin looks at all of these, uh, looks at all of these passages and does the very Lutheran thing of interpreting them through uh, what is revealed about God in the person of Jesus Christ in the Gospels and says, I, I cannot in good conscience say that the prescriptions given for same-sex sexual activity in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, I cannot in good conscience say that those prescriptions are against loving, committed, monogamous relationships, um, between people of the same sexual orientation. And so Justin says, okay, if love is the fulfillment of the law, then there is probably something here that needs to be said. And so Justin has this kind of horrifying realization, well, uh, what if we've been getting it wrong for a long time? And that that's kind of where he stands. But he discovers in his conversations with other Christians who identify as LGB or T that not everyone has actually arrived at that conclusion, even the people who are doing the through the gospel hermeneutic of interpreting these passages. And so he realizes, well, oh, um, not everyone thinks like I do, um, but I want to make room for the people who don't think like me in this dialogue. And so after thinking about it, he comes to the this idea of labeling the sides of the debate as side A and side B. Side A being God can and does bless committed same-sex relationships. Side B saying the norm for human sexuality is sexual activity within the confines of heterosexual marriage. What side B does not include uh, is that homosexuality itself as a sexual orientation is sinful. Uh, So that's an important distinction to make. Um, I – for me personally, I – I appreciate the shorthand approach that Justin is taking towards labeling these sides A and B. Um but as in any in any situation which we're trying to define a binary, the binary does not encompass the whole. Uh there There's a a section of people on the side A side who agree just as side A is articulated. There's a section of side B people on the side B side that agree just as that's been articulated. But there are also outliers who say, well, I don't really know if if I can go that far in either direction. And there are lots of people who are undecided and said, honestly, I don't know which side is actually right. So I'm going to do the best I can with what I know and trust that the grace of God is Powerful enough to uh, shore us up for when we make mistakes. Um, I do know some side A people who are personally called the celibacy. Um, And I do know some side B people who are in committed, although celibate relationships. So there's this area of um, not confusion, but there is this area of uh, blurring between this, Clear side A, side B distinction that I think should be given more attention and in, uh, in our discourse about this.
2: Okay, so thanks uh, for that description, Nate. And um, I, I think what you're pointing out about the diversity of people within this conversation is important and important for us all to keep in mind when we're talking about this um, amongst ourselves with other people in any context, really. So. So for the sake of time, I'll just mention three points from Cortez's sermon fairly quickly here. One is the way that Cortez approaches the debate surrounding biblical interpretation of um, this issue. Um, And like Justin Lee, as uh, Nate has just described, um, Cortez recognizes that the, the traditional interpretation of the Bible um, when it comes to same-sex unions is something that's sort of open to reinterpretation. It's not just you look at the Bible, you look at the traditional interpretation, and if you reject the traditional interpretation, you reject the Bible. Um, and so likely um, Cortez recognizes that um, the passages dealing with or, or seeming to deal with um, some sorts of same-sex unions or connections um, can be interpreted in a different way, um, and in this sermon. He, Cortez seems to be relying particularly on James Brownson's recent work of biblical scholarship, Bible, Gender, and Sexuality. And you know, that's a book that you'll want to read if you want to uh, look into the biblical support for same sex unions. So one of the key points there and in the sermon is that the cultural context um, for the Bible and for the Bible's discussions of things that seem to be similar to homosexuality. Is very different from our cultural context today. Um, one thing that Cortez pulls out is the idea that cultural allusions in the New Testament might be lost to some readers today. So, for example, allusions to sexual exploitation by those by those in power in Romans 1 might be interpreted in a different way today. Um, so from this, there's just a uh, There's two things that seem important to me. One is, of course, that we can reinterpret the Bible and um, see that you can get biblical support for um, same-sex unions, um, and it just sort of depends on your approach. And the other one, the other important thing from this is that um, you can recognize, even if you yourself believe that same-sex unions are wrong, that it would be possible for another person to look at the same Bible that you're looking at and approach it faithfully and try to do the best they can to interpret it faithfully and still come to this different response um, and then sort of recognize that neither being gay, having the orientation of being gay, um, nor accepting LGBT people Neither one of those is a, a rejection of the Bible um, or a rejection of Christianity. Um, the second thing quickly from Cortez's sermon is uh, the importance of hearing other people's experiences. So he talks about a lesbian woman in his church who, over the course of years, uh, told him about her own experiences and that sort of impacted his thinking um, and it, talking with people at conferences like the Gay Christian Network Conference um, and, of course, talking with his son as well. He would listen to different people. Um, so that's one thing to take away, to be able to listen to the experiences of others and listen to the experiences of those who are most affected by this issue, really. Um The last point is that Cortez uh, hopes that his church should become a third way church and this is a term again that comes from Ken Wilson in letter to my congregation um and the idea of the third way church as i understand it is not that there'd be sort of any question of rejecting lgbt people but rather that the church and the pastor and the lgbt people within the church would not reject, um, those who would be against same sex unions. Um, and that uh, the sort of basic idea is that we should take this issue as something that's not essential. It's not itself the bedrock of our faith, um, and treat it instead as an issue that there can be disagreement about. Um, but that we could still take Christ as our center and um, worship together. And Nate, you had something on your blog that I really liked about how communion is radical because you can sit at the communion table with people who are different from you and you can worship together even though you, you might be with somebody who disagrees with you, um, but you can all together be joined in this Incarnational love of Christ. And that I think is important for churches to hear today and to emphasize today. Um, at the Gay Christian Network in January, I heard Cortez give sort of a brief version of this sermon during a sharing time and that, um, it, his description in about his inner debate and his, his current sort of emotions about the damage that has been caused by the church was very moving to me then and it's uh it's moving to me now if you if I watch this sermon on YouTube so I encourage all of you uh listeners to watch this sermon as well all right um, we have maybe 1 minute for a couple of quick responses if you have anything to add to what we've said and then we'll go on to our recommendations do you, do you guys have anything you want to add
1: um, I just wanted to say that I was really impressed with Justin Lee's book on the whole. Uh, I am a person who, I, I guess it's the academic in me, I don't know, um, I'm really skeptical of memoir as, um, as a super effective political tool because, um, I, I felt like he could have just been opening himself up to so much attack by, um if he ignored things like the clobber passages, if he did not address theology, um, sometimes the the way that personal stories can sort of omit other kinds of discussion. But I thought that the book did a really great job of balancing not just putting a face on an issue, because sometimes it's easy to forget that there are people behind these kind of touchy cultural issues. Um, so it, it does that, but it also, I think, addresses theology in a really... Thorough, nuanced, easy to understand way. So I thought that was great.
2: Nate, do you have anything to add?
0: Uh, the one thing that I would add would be uh, the next time. The next time you receive the Eucharist, whatever you believe, remember that you're also dining at the table with people who believe wildly differently uh, than you, and and sit with that. Sit with that when you receive, um, because I think dining together. Um, in that kind of kingdom space is one of the great ways that we can, um, we can open our hearts to the experiences of people who are not like us, people with whom we disagree. Um, and it can be one of those things that fuels us and drives us to continue to be good to one another, uh, in the way that Jesus has been good to us.
2: Thanks, Nate. Um, I guess one other, thing i'd add is that um Justin Lee's book is only one in a number of a lot of recent books that have been coming out on this issue so um you could uh you, you can get a whole range of different people speaking on this topic and um two i guess that i would uh want to uh pass on would be um brownson's a book that I already mentioned, um, the Bible Gender Sexuality that really takes a high view of biblical authority and, um, is, it gets into all these details of interpretation that can be important. Um, and then also another one that I've mentioned would be, uh, Ken Wilson's book, Le- The Letter to My Congregation, where he talks about his own experience with this debate. Um, and we seem both of these are sort of connected with, uh, what we were talking about in this episode, with the, um, the two pieces we were talking about in this episode. And there's a lot of sort of interplay and conversation in terms of uh, people writing on this issue today. So, um, I guess we can move on then to what, uh, you guys' recommendations would be. Um, I guess I just gave mine already, so, um, we could hear uh, what your recommendation is, Victoria, and then uh, Nate's.
1: Okay, uh, I'm going to recommend a book that I, um, that I have lent to several students who um, have come out to me on my campus who are um, sort of struggling with what they feel is a, a very liminal identity and who want um, a, a different look at biblical hermeneutics maybe, um, and when students like that come to me, I loan them a copy of Patrick Ching's Radical Love, An Introduction to Queer Theology, um, which is exactly what it sounds like, An Introduction to Queer Theology. And it's, it's really simple. Um, there are even reading questions and, like, vocabulary words at the end of chapters. Um, it's a, a really basic level um, intro into answering these kinds of questions about identity and about hermeneutics and how these things tie together. So uh, if you are someone or if you know someone who really just wants a, a low level um, introduction to these kinds of issues, I would recommend the Cheng book.
2: Thanks Victoria. Nate, what would uh, your recommendations be?
0: Um, I have a couple of recommendations actually. Uh, The first is a book that I read as part of my formation for the priesthood um, entitled Ourselves, Our Souls and Bodies, Sexuality in the Household of God. Um, it's a collection of essays edited by Charles C. Heffling. Um, and there is one essay in there that is worth the price of the book. Um, it's a speech that was actually given by uh, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, um, to a collection of uh, Lesbian and gay and transgender folks, um, as this debate, which is still going on, was really erupting within the Anglican communion. The title of that essay is The Body's Grace. Um, and there are also, um, a number of other essays in there that are, uh, wildly evocative as well as, um, conversant with scholarship and well-articulated. So I really enjoyed that book. Um, another uh, resource I will refer is the blog entitled A Queer Calling, and I'll put the link to that in the show notes. Um, but it's a blog written by a couple friend friends of mine uh, who are in a celibate LGBT partnership um, and who represent a traditional interpretation of the sexual ethic um, in Christianity, but who are also seeking out how to make life together um, as people united around a common calling to celibacy and also to be with one another. So that's a very interesting read. Um, For those of you listening who are not familiar with gay churches, or excuse me, gay affirming churches in your area, I also want to refer you to gaychurch.org. Uh, which is an omnibus resource for uh, GLBTQ affirming churches in all 50 states. They have a wonderful directory there. My church is listed there, Uh, wink, wink. Um, So if you are looking for a place to kind of experience what it's like to worship with people who may be different than you, um, that would be a wonderful resource. And if you're looking for a spiritual home that you – that would be safe for you. uh, That is also a commendable resource.
2: Oh, thanks, Nate. Those are some great recommendations. I'm going to be sure to uh, look up that essay particularly. So that finishes up our show for today. And you can find us online to continue the conversation. You can comment on our page at, on, on, the Christian Humanist Network, um, at ChristianHumanist.org. You can find us on Facebook as Christian Feminist Podcast, and you can email us at Christian Feminist Podcast at gmail.com. Our next show will be on Christina Rossetti. So until then, in Essentials Unity, in Non-Essentials Liberty, and in all things, love.